Welcome to the Pandora Podcast, where fellowship-trained pain specialists Dr. Melissa Cady and Dr. Kevin Cucaro reveal the secrets of pain care, including harmful practices, healthy tips, and the hope found through the science of pain. Please note, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. Please discuss your medical issues with your personal health professional. For more information and free resources, visit Pandora.com. Now on to the show. Well, welcome back to the Pandora podcast. I am Melissa Katie, the challenge doctor, joined by Dr. Kevin Kakaro, uh, known as Dr. Kevin. And we're here today to talk a little bit about stress. And this is something that I think that Dr. Kevin has been really good at educating the public and professionals about uh, stress and actually it relates to pain too but we're just going to talk a little bit about how stress affects the body and to start off we'll probably um, show an image to kind of give some some framework um, some discussion points on on what stress is all about so um, Dr. Kevin would you like me to share the image now you can, I, I do have to say I need my own little who am I? They're like, I'm the challenge doctor. This is Dr. <laughs> Kevin, also known as Dr. <laughs> Kevin. It's like, oh, that's a stress to me. I'm feeling left out here. Well, I'll come up with one for you. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's isolation and social isolation stress. Oh, I'm making you feel bad. Anyway, I'm making myself try to feel important by having the challenge doctor. <laughs> but uh, but that, that term is actually really relevant to today's discussion. Because yes. that, that challenge element is going to come up a lot. So. All right, let's see the image, doctor. All right, I am going to shift over to the image per your request, Dr. Kevin. Let's see here. All right. right, We should cite probably wherever this image is coming from. Sure, and this this image um, I will tell you is, and for those that are not watching a video but are maybe just listening, um, the Journal of Neuroscience has a image and I will probably put that link um, in the show notes and it's part of the 2020 article on revisiting the stress concept implications for affective disorder so just to make a professional reference there and we should be sharing that now well and it looks good okay and for those who are listening, it shows a big brain with lots of <laughs> bubbles pointing arrows at it, which would be very stressful to any brain out there if you're shooting <laughs> it with arrows. But, now, it, this is a, it's a pretty good image, and there's a lot of medical gobbledygook on here, but it, um, what, what it really centers around, and one of the reasons I like this particular image, it shows your brain in the center of the diagram. And this, there's a couple of terms that we need to kind of quickly define stress. Yeah, which may not necessarily be what people think it is per se. And then the other one is as, as a term called stressor, which is not necessarily used as often, but is critically important to understand. So the, the way I will, I usually kind of explain this is I use an analogy of a ship. Um, and then that ship, that shipboard environment, there's the boat itself. There's the, there's the physical ship size and its, and its resources and abilities. And then that ship has a crew. And then that crew has, a, and then that ship has a captain as well. And it's that dynamic relationship between the captain, the crew, and the ship. And you kind of visualize that as that is you. So that is the, you as the human organism with the captain kind of being your, 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 uh, your higher thinking strategies, the, the crew bring the bodily processes and the boat itself being kind of your, like your physiology your, or your physical 
body itself. So the muscles, the bones and all that other stuff. And then what that ship is doing then is it's floating on a sea and that sea is basically life. And then what happens to that ship is no ship sits in one place. Instead, there are winds and water and waves. There's things that are external to that ship, that whole kind of construct that cause it to dip and turn and can, can propel it forward or move it backward. And all of those things, the wind, the water, and the waves are the stressors in life. And those stressors then can be physical stressors. They can be social stressors, psychological stressors, uh, emotional stressors, all of which then engage you as a human being and then either promote some sort of uh, some sort of response with that. Meaning it can be just you're thinking differently, it can be an emotional response, it can be a physical response. That response, that kind of dynamic between those winds and water and waves with your ship is your experience of stress. So stress is very individual centric. It's the experience that you're going through when you are subjected to stressors. Uh, and so, with this particular diagram, what we can see then is all of those stressors of which, um, and if you guys are seeing this in the video, the chronic social environmental stressors, the physiologic stressors, major life trauma events, those are our stressors. And then they have a ten then our brain takes that information and has then a response that's generated from it. And that response, that overall response is the stress that we're experiencing. Um, the, the, the key thing with this, though, and the most important thing to remember is this is both your body and your brain together that have a response that comes from this, not one or the other. And the reason that's important is some people seem to assume that stress, well, you know, that there's, you know, a, a physical stress, which say you breaking your leg may be worse than, say, an emotional stress like depression or trauma or social isolation. And that doesn't seem to be the case. It really is. It's dependent upon the type of stressor itself. Because those um, social isolation we know kills, has, a, has some profound physiology with it. Sure, a broken leg can kill you as well. But what really becomes critical is how you see that stressor or how you perceive that stressor. And that comes down to what I was leading to before when, you, when we're talking about the challenge doctor is one of the crucial distinguishers upon how, what type of, of stress response or experience that's generated with it is how you see or perceive a stressor. Do you see it as a challenge or do you see it as a threat? And that depends on, you know, the way that we, that a stressor becomes relevant is it's important to you, has consequences to you. And, uh, and again, it's specifically relevant in this moment in time. And then the second thing to be thinking of, or your brain's kind of doing this quick mental math with is, do I have the resources, skills, capabilities, et cetera, to effectively deal with that stressor? And so when you have all this stuff, personally relevant, important, and it has uh, direct consequences to me, and you believe, again, not, it may not be positive, but it says, I think I have the resources, either physical resources, the social resources, the skills, the learning, the adaptation to effectively deal with the stressor. The, 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 the stress experience that you have with that is what we would call a challenge-based physiology. And that would be what's typically called as eustress. Eustress being, I think it's from Greek, eu, eu meaning good. So it's like good stress. If you have that same kind of self-revelant, important, has consequences to me, 
but then your brain's going, well, I don't think I have the resources. I'm, I'm tired. I, I, I'm weak. Um, I'm, I'm alone. There's no one else I can rely upon. Now we start perceiving that same, that same stressor as a threat because we don't have the resources. And that would be called distress, dis being uh, the bad stress, or, or we'll just call it threat-based stress. And then the physiology changes again. And that, that physiological difference between a challenge stress and a threat-based stress has um, really important consequences downstream because one of them, the, particularly that threat-based stress, has what we would call on this particular diagram has associated with higher allostatic load. And that is like if, you're, if you're, you're thinking of yourself as a ship sailing through the oceans of life, that allostatic load is how much that ship, captain, crew, and boat itself are being tossed and turned by the waves and water. And if you're getting tossed and turned a lot, high allostatic load, that's going to have an effect on your boat, your ship itself, on the crew, and how quickly they recover or what their skill set, and even the captain. And so, we, uh, so allostatic load becomes important because that is associated with kind of accelerating a lot of different disease processes, which involve basically every single organ system in the body because stress is, is, a, is associated with changes in every organ system of the body. So cardiovascular system, so your heart uh, and big blood vessels, uh, or in the, in the small blood vessels too, your gastrointestinal system, so how you process and digest food and how you excrete matter, um, your, your reproductive system, um, your immune system, your endocrine system, all those things are, are, are tied together when it comes to stress and all of them respond differently. And so if we're putting a lot of work and load on that from a lot of threat-based stress, we tend to, to kind of um, age our ship faster, our ship, meaning captain, crew, and boat itself. And, and we can see some long-term sequelae with that. So that was a super, super, super long explanation, but I hope it kind of makes sense so far. Yeah, well, a, a couple of thoughts um, from what you presented. So um, I usually say the word um, broady. I know that sounds really strange, um, but BR-ODY to really see conceptually the system as one at the brain and body are intricately connected. Broady, okay. <laughs> BR-ODY, BR not Brody but broady it's your broady so the brain is include included within that um that's just my own made-up word i obviously like to make up words um i'm gonna just mention or ask you before i get off this image um do you mind just giving the audience an idea to understand what allostasis means so um allostasis is the change from normal so the, the other term that's not on here is homeostasis which is sort of like the set point where everything's in equilibrium and then allostasis is when you are pushed out of equilibrium as the, the I mean, I'm going to use the word turn energy, but it's not necessarily energy. It's all the, all the things that need to be done in order to return you back to normal. So again, if you're thinking about a, a ship, your ship twists, your ship is normally upright. The wind blows and twists it to a side or the, or the water, a big wave comes and kind of tilts it. And then allostasis is being returning that ship upright again, rather than carrying it and flipping it over. Does that, does that sort of make sense? So it's, yeah. it's, it's the, it's, it's all of that energy and processes and responses necessary to return you to a, to the set point of balance. So it seems like from the way it's depicted here is that, that Alice, that allostatic load, um, there's an adaptation that can return it back to normal. Is well, 
Yeah. Well, here's your, your challenge. Well, if we're challenging, yeah. right, the ship is turning like this and you're having this effect of allostasis trying to return it to normal. You can now adapt to that, meaning get stronger, your crew gets more effective, your captain gets more competent, in which case becomes adaption or it kind of sets you. So you've now adapted to it. And so your ability to deal with future stressors is now improved. And so now your home, your, your, your kind of set point, your, your balance point is now in a different place, right? Yeah. So you can think about this. That's a, and that's the process of life. So if you've effectively dealt with um, challenges as a youth, small challenges, and you've effectively dealt with them, your skill to, to deal with future challenges continues to improve. Yeah. Well, that brings up a point. I'm going to come off this um, sharing. One of the things that made me think of when you said that the feeling like you have the capacity to deal with this, this, these different stresses, um, it seems that there's a sense when you don't feel that capacity um, or that self-efficacy or whatever the words that people may use, that there tends to be an associated sense of helplessness and or hopelessness um, when people can't, they don't believe that they can improve their situation, whatever that might be. Um, would you associate that like helplessness and hopelessness essentially with that type of you stress or the distress versus you stress? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that that has um, some significant physiological consequences on the Brody. <laughs> On the, the brody. brody. On the Brody, on the Brody, on the Brody, whatever. Brody, Brody. Brody sounds like body, but anyway. <laughs> Katie, and, and Caddy, that, you know, it's Katie. <laughs> Caddy, Brody, Brody. Um, and, 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 it, and it absolutely does. And, and that's one of the, the things that's really kind of critical about stress is, is people say, well, I don't want any stress in my life. That is not what the goal is. It's similar in a lot of ways when we're talking about pain. The pain is, is we don't want to say no pain because pain has an, is, an, is important to survival in the same way stress is. If you don't, what we don't, what we want to say is we want to have stressors that we have, that we feel challenged by. So not so easy that we know this is like nothing. I can do it any day. You know, how difficult is it for me to walk? Well, I could do it. That's not a challenge anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're doing the same thing and you're not challenging yourself, you're not actually improving and kind of increasing your sense of adaptation. Uh, and preparing yourself for future stressors. On the same flip uh, token, though, you have to have you have to start where you are. And if you have, submit someone to to stressors for which they do not believe they have the capability to overcome, that not only can cause significant distress, you actually can disempower them further. So a lot of that comes from. I think this is really interesting. Is if anybody's familiar with Martin Seligman, who is sort of known as the, the father of positive psychology movement, where he's like, well, we, you know, we studied all this, this negative stuff for so long, we should study on the stuff that makes people well. But Martin Seligman actually started his career um, investigating a phenomenon known as learned helplessness. Yes, the dogs. When he was subjecting the dogs to the shock so much too, they got to the point where the dogs felt like they had no control. There was nothing that they can do. They were completely disempowered. And when you get to that stage, they could just shock them and, and the dogs. I mean, this is horrible, folks. I, and I think he, I'd like to think this is one of the reasons he switched his perspective because it's got to be an awful to do this kind of research. Um, but if, you, if you're putting somebody in, into a point where they have no control 
and then you can continue to subject them to these to these significant stressors and continue to disempower them you put them in a place that becomes incredibly difficult to recover from and so so when we're talking about stress there's this complex interplay between challenge and threat and then also looking at the intensity of the stressor so making sure because the goal is to get people not no stress but to see and re, and to challenge themselves, not what I call you know baby bear phenomena, right? Not too much, not too little, but just right, so that they can learn and grow. And you know it's just right because there is still the capacity of failing, so that you can do an action and it may not come out exactly how you want. Um, anyway, so that's that's uh, that's kind of, but it's it's kind of interesting that the you know this field of of learned helplessness um, and some of that information, because if you're looking at it from a human standpoint, that happens all the time. Yeah, and from a pain standpoint, we've done that. If we are subjecting people to interventions and things that have either inconsistent or or uh, lack of efficacy, and we continue to externalize pain as something that people don't have control over, we're disempowering them, saying you have no responsibility. Responsibility meaning responsibility, so response slash ability, uh, not as your fault. But we, you don't have any ability to respond in an able fashion to pain, which, which we will typically do. I mean, when I was doing it and I was doing interventions, we would say that, right? We'll come in and have the injection. We're taking away and just taking control from people. And then they're having flares and things that they are not being provided a, a knowledge and skill set to understand how that flare is happening. We're creating this sense of disempowerment. We're actually increasing the sense of learned helplessness. And again, from a stress standpoint, we know that's bad. And from a pain standpoint, we know that's bad. Because just like threat and high amounts of threat worsens stress with, with not the great sequelae associated with it, when we know pain as a protector, and so as you modulate and increase perception of stress, we worsen pain. So there's this tight interplay between stress and pain that the same skill set that you're learning, if you're learning really effective, what I would call stress mastery strategies, they're directly applicable to pain mastery strategies because of this overlay between threat uh, for both of them. Yeah. You know, this um, example of just stress and, and how it you can get to a place of if, if you don't feel like you have the capacity to deal with it um, or you've had been traumatized and in, in, in horrible ways and you look at relationships of abuse and other things where people get stuck in their place and may have it out of concern for their own safety if they left, but there's still, there's still an impact on their psyche um, when it comes to their sense that they really can make a change in the current circumstance. Um, the reason I brought that up is because this plays into a lot of, um, you know, adults who have had adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and there's traumas that are part of, you know, this image. I'll just share it, uh, real quick again, just to point it out, um, where it, we're looking at major life events and trauma, death, divorce, abuse, dislocation, um, from family. Um, you know, my question for you is there's a lot of things that people assume that your stress is inherently something that you're consciously aware of, but, but I think that it would, we'd be remiss not to mention that there's so much subconscious stuff that is interplayed and woven into our brain, um, 
and not really to fault anybody or, or shame or blame anyone, but there's a lot of subconscious things that can interplay into creating either potentially the sense of overload and you can't, it's too much stress or it, it exacerbates the sense of stress because of prior traumas, um, or you've been traumatized so much in your life and never accumulated or felt like you had the skills to deal with it. So hence again, life gets too much and it seems like you can't handle it. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, I think there's, there's two, two important com uh, components to that. One is like early, early life stressors, right? Adverse child events. And so we know the earlier you are in life, and the more significant stressors that you're submitted to, and then there's a slight genetic component to it as well, it changes how your brain processes information. And the way I explain that is if you're in a high threat and danger environment, it would make sense for your brain to adapt to see danger and threat easier, which has, again, that impact on, on stress, more likely to have kind of that distress phenomenon, threat-based stress. But on pain, it also makes it obviously that you're, the more you're likely you are to see danger and threat, the more likely you are to experience pain. So that's, that's one token with it. The other part, though, was, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm blanking out on what you were saying, was, oh, the, this kind of the subconscious process. So now if we're thinking about early life stress, we have a brain that's sort of primed to see threat easier. But outside of that, for every one of us, there's the conscious level, what the brain is doing, what you're actively engaged in, but the majority of what your brain's doing is unconscious or subconscious and is constantly scanning your environment. And you know that happens because if someone says your name from across the room and you're not paying attention, the reason that you notice your name is because your subconscious is scanning the environment for things that are important to you. And there's, there's few things that are as relevant to us as a person as our name, right? So you call out the name, it's gonna grab your attention. And the only way that happens is because we have this kind of subconscious scanner going on and it seems to involve like the salience network and things like that. But that's not what's the, what's the salient network, just the salience network. So then, <laughs> so that goes into cognitive control that, that goes into brain functional brain networks, right? So you have the default mode network and you have the cognitive control network and you have the salience network and they're all interplaying. They're like all the software systems of the brain <laughs> and the salience network is involved with kind of switching between pay attention to this and let's let the brain relax and just do default kind of material so we can kind of allow ourselves to process information and think freely yeah. as cognitive it, it, cognitive demand is energy intensive right so if, if you're turned on and you're trying to focus all the time it, i mean just imagine if you're doing any sort of really heavy mental work that's physically draining yeah and it's physically huh no i was just thinking of example of driving where you oh yeah you realize what you're doing <laughs> Yeah, well, and the well, the salience network is involved in there. So you're 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 driving, and most of us are driven so much that's by habit. So now we're typically we call that or the the brain will switch more into and all this stuff is happening. I don't want to say it's binary in any way, but yeah. all this stuff is happening once. But you're sort of in the default mode or that kind of habitual bodily process thing. Ball rolls out in the street, that grabs your attention, engages your cognitive control network, focuses your attention, and you start scanning for additional threats. You're looking for the kid, right? You don't want to hit the kid. Yeah. Um, but if you're running through life and everything because something jumping out at you on the road, like everything you see now is engaging that cognitive control network, you kind of kind of think about that as that's what the effect that early life stress does mm -hmm. is it, it heightens the sense of threat and danger so that things that in a normal, you know, for someone who doesn't have that kind of stress physiology behind it or that, that long-term associated stress physiology, 
um, they, they start seeing threats and dangers where threats and dangers aren't likely to be. And that is exhausting physically and mentally. And so again, that interplay with pain comes in because when you have, again, these, this, this high threat sensitivity, which worsens pain, it also starts explaining some of the comorbid symptoms that we see with people who've had pain for long periods of time. That cognitive fog or the, uh, in, you know, in fibromyalgia, they'll talk about the fibro fog. Well, if I take your brain and I'm turning it on, pay attention, don't pay attention, pay attention, don't pay attention, pay attention, don't pay attention. That's physically and mentally exhausting and becomes difficult to think because your brain hasn't had a chance to rest and recover. Right? So it's like you're, again, return to stress. You're on your ship and now the captain is saying, alert crew and the crew jumps up and they get the ship ready and oh sorry falls off and it goes down and you keep doing that over and over again your captain is going to get tired your your uh your, your crew is going to get exhausted and then they're going to start not being able to maintain the ship effectively so then the ship the the boat itself starts to getting to degrade and, then and they so, don't sleep well and then you don't sleep well and sleep's really important to that so i, I but the on the flip side of this i just also want to make sure that people understand is because of this this the adaptate the, the the remarkable self-healing and adaptability of the human brain and body, it doesn't mean you can't necessarily recover from that, right? So because the personal the other way that we can frame this is well, you've had all this stress and trauma in your life. That's just the way your brain's programmed. That's just how it is. That's you're you're sure you're more you're more primed. You may have more threat sensitivity. It was actually a good thing when you're living in those high threat and dangerous environments. But if you're become aware you can become aware of how this stuff works. That awareness builds that space, like you know, Victor Vronkel between stimulus and response. There's that space. Awareness increases that that space. And instead of saying, "Oh my God, I'm I'm so stressed out. I don't know why," or "My life is overwhelming," and say, "Oh wait a second, Joe at work was a total jerk off, and I didn't notice how that really physically affected me." But now you can. Oh, but I know that because of that, then this is going to cause this. Oh, but I'm safe now. Right? So we're building that space. And the more aware that we are, the more insensitive control that we have and the more we change that physiology that's associated with this. Yeah. And just for the audience, if you don't know who Viktor Frankl is, uh, Man's Search for Meaning is an incredible book. Very small, easy to read. Um, um, very inspiring um, story of, of being in a prisoner camp. and um, Highly even relevant on. to stress, right? What's that? It's, and it's highly relevant to stress because oh, you, absolutely. You know, so Vic, Victor Frankl was a was a Jewish psychiatrist in Austria or wherever when the when the Nazis took over and mm -hmm. they put him in this concentration camp. And brilliant mind that he was, he's in this horrible environment. He starts to actually study and observe everything. And what he found is, you know, these are horrible, horrible, horrible environment. But he couldn't figure out why some people died and some people lived. Mm -hmm. And the whole premise between man's search for meaning is those who had meaning there was something more we can almost return in this idea there was an idea there was a sense of control that they had over some aspect of their personal experience right. and they had something to live for some sort of meaning to live for those people were more likely to survive that environment yep. and um and from a stress standpoint again that becomes very very important because i would say that is if this is awareness piece of how much you can return to your sense of control in your, in a nazi prison camp you have very very little control of the external environment but you have a lot more control over your shipboard environment the captain the crew and the body itself 
And the more you then can return and focus and say, well, I need to get through this because I need to get my ship to see my spouse again, or I want other people to, to, I need to report the horrors of this. So this never happens again, but we're returning to a sense of meaning. Um, that changes again, that stress physiology away from that high threat, high threat, learned helplessness response and pulling it more into that challenge based phenomenon. Cause now it becomes a challenge to overcome versus a threat to be um, survived. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that story. And I think there's um, it's a perfect full circle into how the same environment can, depending on how you are interpreting that as either a challenge or um, some kind of distress can ultimately lead to the outcome of how well you adapt to it. And in this case, survival, um, obviously there is some luck involved too. Um, if someone, you know, um, with the things that they did to those um, prisoners. But, uh, you know, one of the last questions I wanted to stem from all this conversation, um, especially after that inspiring story, is, is this idea of from, a, um, from an endocrine type standpoint, when you look at eustress versus distress, I, we've talked about this before, and I like the way you, you kind of illustrate or describe the differences even chemically on how it impacts an individual um, when, with regard to cortisol. I don't know if you want to touch on that. So, so, you know, very, very briefly on there. So distress being that threat, you kind of think about that as threat stress and eustress being good stress or challenge-based stress. If you are in a in a if a stressor or in your or a stressful environment, there are things that are kind of universal to it, right? And um, let's see, what's the best way kind of to visualize it? So let's go back a hundred thousand years. Now you are a caveman, and you're walking by a cave, and you hear a growl, growl coming out of the cave, right? So that growl, you're thinking is a saber toothed tiger. Right. Something like that. Something like that. Oh my God. Saber, brain goes saber tooth tiger. That's a growl. Maybe there's a saber tooth tiger poop on the ground or something, whatever. Right. Yeah. So if you are, that's personally relevant to you, right. <laughs> it has some significant repercussions for you, but now maybe you don't have your spear or, or you've never hunted a saber tooth tiger before. We're going to go into that threat based stress. What you're going to see is your heart rate's going to go up. So we have what are called catecholamines. Or we'll just call that adrenaline is sort of this overarching term for that. So adrenaline is going to go up and your blood's going to start pumping. In addition to that, another endocrine is, or uh, uh, another hormone is going to be secreted called cortisol, um, which a lot of people know about with it. So it kind of goes throughout the body, has multiple different effects depending on certain it has effects on the brain to kind of increase the, the, the flash frame photography because I want to remember this. It's like, if I'm going to survive this horrible event, I need to recognize this. So then in the future that I'll be more likely to, to adapt to it. Um, it, it changes how your body processes things like blood glucose. So it increases energy. So it increases, changes the metabolism there. It increases things like how your immune system and your blood is getting ready to coagulate. So it, or clot off. So it's like, let's secrete this hormone because I think I might get bitten by this saber-toothed tiger. So we need to be able to make sure I don't bleed to death. And we need to be able to fight off the infection because those saber-toothed tigers haven't been brushing their teeth. Right. Mm -hmm. So lots of adrenaline, lots of cortisol, distress, threat-based stress. Same tiger, different person though, walking through the woods. Rawr, tiger. Sees the tiger poop on the ground. But now he says, I'm hunting saber-toothed tigers. And he's got his spear, right? 
So you got all that adrenaline going through the body again, the heart rate's going up, all that stuff, blood's pumping out into his muscles. But because this is, um, he feels he has the resources, he has a good spirit, maybe he's got his buddies with him, he wants to hunt the tiger, maybe he's overcome smaller tigers in the past, he knows this is dangerous, but it's now a challenge. So the physiology is much more what we call that adrenaline-based phenomenon and significantly less cortisol associated with it. And that has, again, those long-term implications with the body. You can't hunt tigers every day, even if you love hunting tigers. You still have to have rest and recovery in there. But if you're in a tiger-filled environment and you have that distress and cortisol and you're just helpless and being tossed around, that's going to hurt your body a heck of a lot more than being able to see that thing as a, as a challenge. So, the, again, the physiology is different between the two. Tiger is the same. The human is essentially the same. But the perception of what that, that tiger means to the individual is different. And that difference in perception has significant repercussions on the, the brain and body, Brody, 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 <laughs> on the Brody itself. Yeah, Brody works. Brody. Yeah, no, I mean, if, if, you've, if you've hunted them um, and, and killed 10 tigers, you've built up the confidence. Um, there, there's no doubt that that can make a big difference. Um, yeah and how you feel equipped um, to deal with those things. But, um, you know, I think, I think that this is a, you know, a, just a good example, even extending off of, of, of the story that we talked about, Man's Search for Meaning, and Viktor Frankl's probably, you know, there may have been some cortisol at certain points, but overall his sense of meaning um, and what he was fighting for what he was doing, um, his intentions, um, and overall meaning for things. He saw this as a challenge, um, that he needed to survive. Um, but in a way that it seemed like he was able to keep his, uh, mind, um, occupied in a healthier way and seeing it more as a challenge versus a, a, a major distress, like all the people around him or most of the people around him. So, um, totally different outcome. And hence the, the book was actually written. Um, I think this, this is a, a good place to end with a sense of, of hope. Uh, maybe it's people want to read that book um, to, to dive in and, and appreciate the, the, the messaging behind that. But um, I think overall stress is a, um, depending on the context, um, can be, can be um, healthy or unhealthy if it's a distress versus a eustress. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that is, you talked about challenge doctor and the way I use, use that word is purely intentional to say that if you can just see things as a challenge um, or not be overwhelmed by the word challenge and making it distress, that there is a, a great opportunity for change, a positive change. Now, there could be negative changes if you see it um, as some... Uh, some sense of threat. And uh, I think that's a, a good word doctor. for it. What's that? You changed your name to the threat doctor. <laughs> well, there's your name. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we're not going to make you the, 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 the threat doctor or stress torture doctor. doctor. <laughs> the what? The torture doctor. <laughs> yeah. No. So I, I think, I think there's some, some great messaging there. Well, it, there, there's important, messaging and, and the other important thing about this is we don't you know we we love to talk about this stuff obviously but really is for the people who are listening to this the key thing about this there's a reason that you to, to learn more 
and you don't have to get a degree in neuroscience to get some a foundation in understanding basic stress physiology and neurophysiology, like just that perceptual swift. And the other part is about pain. So the more that you tend to understand something, and this is, this is another thing that is important for people to understand. The more you feel like you understand something, mm -hmm. when you encounter that something, whatever it is in the future, do you think it's more threatening to you or is it more challenging to you? And the, the more we tend to understand and can make sense of things, the less threatening and dangerous they are. Yeah, it, you know, another little analogy I'll give to people is if, you know, if you are, you open your basement door, it's pitch black out there and you hear your horrible noises and things like that. The best thing that you can do is to turn the light on. And maybe it is a bear in your, in your basement, but the bear that you can see is less of a threat than the bear that you can't see. And you, because now you can actually say what the size of the bear is, is it a little bear, a big bear or whatever. But if your, your brain, if you can't see it, if it doesn't understand, it's going to make it into the biggest possible bear that it can. Again, not because it's an evil brain, but because it wants to put out the worst potential threat. So that it says, you know, this is the worst potential scenario that we need to be ready for. So turn the light on, look at the bear, just like pain, just like stress, turn the light on and learn more about it so that we can, you can start making sure that we're, uh, we appropriately understand this stuff so that they're less threatening and dangerous. I love that. That was perfect. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I think uh, you should close us out. Close us out. Well, all right. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, we or any last thoughts. <laughs> last, I think that's our last thoughts, but yes. we hope that you got something out of this. Again, this is the pain door podcast. We're going to totally, we should be leaving every episode with some sort of hopeful message. And I hope you're getting with this. Um, I'm Dr. Kevin. I am not known as the threat doctor and I'm here with my host, Dr. Katie, who is known as the challenge doctor. And until next time, stay well. See y'all next time. Thank you for joining us today on the Pain Door Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know through a five-star rating on iTunes or your current podcast listening service. And be sure to check out the information and resources available at Pandora.com.